Well, good morning, church. Grateful to have you back here at our online service. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. If I've never met you and you are new to us here uh, at our online service, my name is Sean. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Providence North. We are so grateful that you would uh, spend some time with us here this morning um, or whenever you're watching this, worshiping uh, our God and uh, opening up God's word and seeing more of what he's like. And so thank you so much for, uh, for tuning in. Uh, this week, we're excited. We're beginning a brand new series, uh, a 13-week series that uh, will kind of put us right up against the Advent season um, uh, that we're calling Doctrine. And we are going to be uh, looking at some core doctrines of the Christian faith as we survey the Bible. Um, and really, this idea, uh, doing this, this series called Doctrine, is, is uh, coming from Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says that we are to teach um, what is in accordance with sound doctrine, uh, meaning that, that doctrine is not something that's kind of secondary, that's only for a few people to really dig into and know and learn, but the Apostle Paul is charging and challenging the local church to say, uh, teach sound doctrine. Teach in accordance with what God's word says, sound doctrine, so that we know how to rightly think about God and how we know who God is, what he's like, his nature, and his character, because right doctrine produces in us right understanding of God, and a right understanding of God actually produces in us a life that is pleasing to God through the power of the Spirit. Um, and so over the next 13 weeks, we're going to be following the storyline of the Bible, and we're going to be looking at major truths of Christian scripture. And so today I'm excited. Uh, there's so much we can spend uh, hours and hours and hours talking about this, uh, but we're just going to do it uh, here, uh, hopefully in about 30 minutes with you. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said this concerning the Trinity. He says, now, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. But if you attempt to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. Um, so I am going to uh, attempt to avoid both of those pitfalls here today. Um, Augustine said that because the Trinity is really a confounding concept. It is hard for us to wrap our minds fully Around And all we can really do, I'm not going to be able to uncover every little nuance of the Trinity. All we can really do is just teach what we find in the scriptures. Um, and so the Trinity, the Trinity is the core belief in the Christian faith since the very beginning. The Trinity is what has grounded and rooted the church from almost the very beginning. Now, my mother uh, was a Methodist. Uh, and they had something that they recited called the Gloria Patre, and it went something like this. Glory be to God, the Father and Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be the world without end. Amen. There we see the Trinity, and the Gloria Patre. And then we've got things like the Apostles' Creed that have uh, been a treasure of the church 
For many, many years, it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of the heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. We have uh, songs that we sing that go like this. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Jesus said it this way. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He's speaking to the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of communion, the Holy Spirit, be with you now and forevermore. The Trinity. So why spend 13 weeks looking at doctrine? Um, in, 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 in essence, when you look at doctrine, you're basically just, you're looking and trying to discover who God is given to us in God's word. And so what does the Bible say about the character, the nature, and the person of God? And so that is paramount for us to know. We've got to know who God is. And God has given to us the revealed word of God, his, his word right here in the scriptures. And because no one can rise above their concept of God, um, that means that if we have a faulty view of God, it means that we're going to suffer in many ways. It means that we have a lack of understanding of what God truly is like. And if we don't understand what he's like, we'll live our lives in a faulty way. We'll get tripped up in a lot of things. Um, and if we don't understand what God's like, who is at the very beginning, who is our maker, who is our creator, then we will never understand what we are to be like. And so in the coming weeks, we're gonna be talking about who God is, his essence, what he's like, and that everything we'll learn in our lives is linked directly to our understanding of God and there's nothing more important than answering this question. There's nothing more important than answering this question. Who is my God? Who do I worship? Who do I believe in? And, and one day when I pass from this world, who do I anticipate that I will see one day? If that reality is not matched up with the truths given to us in the Bible, then we are going to have an incorrect view of God, and therefore, we will have an incorrect view of ourselves. And when we have an incorrect view of ourselves, all sorts of chaos happens in our lives. And I think we're seeing that played out today again and again and again and again. And it begins with our lack of understanding of who God is. And when we lack an understanding of who God is, we lack an understanding of who we are, our identity. And when we lack an understanding of who we are based on the truths found in God's word, we find ourselves in chaos and we find ourselves inventing our own meanings about who we are and what this world should be like and what we should be like and how we're to live in it. And we therefore have no standard. And the scriptures give us a standard. 
and it's good and it's right and it's true and it's beautiful. So today we're gonna to be looking at the Trinity. Um, what's interesting about the word Trinity is that we actually don't have a word, that word in our Bible. The word Trinity uh, doesn't come up in our Bible. Um, so essentially theologians uh, early church fathers had to invent a word for this thing that's found all over the scriptures. Uh, and we had to invent a word because there was nothing else, there wasn't a word that really described what we saw in the Bible. We had no paradigm for this outside of God's word. We had no paradigm for uh, what this meant or what this looked like. And so in the scriptures, as we look at it, we see God as tri-unity or the Trinity as we have it today. Now, if you're gonna think that I'm gonna be able to explain this, like I said, in every little detail, I'm not. Paul himself even says it this way. He says, by common confession, Great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in flesh. Francis Schaeffer, the great thinker, said that if the Bible did not teach the Trinity, he would be an agnostic. Because in the Trinity, church, we are shown something truly wonderful and marvelous about God. Um, that he is not just all-powerful, though he is. But what we have in the Trinity is we see in God love. We see goodness. We see justice. We see righteousness. We see beauty. We see unity in diversity. We see order. We see submission. And all these warm, glorious things we value that we love are found in the Trinity. And they're not just a potential for them to be present, but they're, they're actually there in God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Spirit. Now, the Bible teaches us, um, I'm gonna break it down into just five things about this unchangeable truth of the Trinity. It teaches that God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Secondly, it teaches that all three persons individually are divine. God the Father is divine. God the Son is divine. God the Holy Spirit is divine. Number three, the Bible teaches that all three are distinct. Um, meaning they are not manifestations. Um, meaning this, that God does not morph into the Son. So it's not like it's God the Father and then he becomes God the Son and then after he's God the Son, he morphs into God the Holy Spirit. He's not, um, as I was writing this word down, not like the Power Rangers, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. He doesn't morph into something else. It's not one thing that becomes the next thing. He's distinct. All three are distinct. Now to believe that he morphs into different um, phases of God is to believe a heresy about God. Uh, and there are some <clears throat> that hold to this. 
Well, uh, this is called modalism, if you want to get to the, the technical term for it. Uh, the scriptures do not teach that God takes different modes. The scriptures teach that God is three in one, distinct. Um, how do we know this? When Jesus is praying in the garden, he prays to his Father. Father, keep me from this hour, not my will, but yours. Here we see union, submission, and distinction between God the Son and God the Father. There is a Father. The unique Son of God is praying and speaking to his Father. They are distinct, and the Father is real. The Son is talking to someone, the Father. Um, there is a Father that gives to us his eternal son, his preeminent son, right? It says there is a father that so loved the world that he gave his son. They're distinct. And Jesus actually speaks about the Holy Spirit. He says, the father will send another helper in my name, the spirit of truth. And so we see throughout the New Testament that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are constantly working in union together. They are actually um, showing beauty and diversity. They're, we see submission throughout the scriptures, but they're also distinct. They're not just different forms of themselves. Uh, fourth thing we see about the Trinity is that there's perfect unity amongst the Trinity. The Father ordains, the Son acts, and the Spirit brings it into effect. For example, the Father creates the heavens and the earth, the Son speaks, and the Spirit moves over the waters of the deep. The Father chooses his elect, the Son pays for them on the cross, and the Spirit calls them to faith, converts them, keeps them, and raises them on the last day. They are in perfect congruity. They are never in opposition. They uh, work perfectly together. And yet, at the very same time, We hear the scriptures say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is one. There is one God, not three. There is one God in three persons of the same substance. This is not an easy thing to explain because there is nothing else in the created world that you can point to and say it's like this. There's no example that I can show to you that I can point to in the created world that says, oh, the Trinity is like this. If you try to, it breaks down, it doesn't hold water. This concept for our human minds is confounding. So where did this come from? Where did this word Trinity come from? Where did this doctrine come from? Well, doctrine is when you take 
what the Bible says in its entirety. You look at the, the, the scope of the Bible, the scope of what it said, um, and then you put it together. The term Trinity came from a lawyer, of course, uh, in the third century, and his name was Tertullian. And the way we come to doctrine often are quite frankly, almost always in church history is when we're faced with incorrect views of God. And so where we have incorrect thoughts on God that bubble up and that present themselves, namely, most frequently, even within the walls of the church, there needs to be a doctrine that comes to help define who God is. And doctrine comes to, and the way that we define it is not by simply just coming up with an idea, but by going to God's word, taking the whole of scripture, and seeing from cover to cover what it is that God says about that very thing. And that's how doctrine is formed. And doctrines throughout church history have guarded the church from uh, incorrect false views of God. The old term for that would be heresy. We don't like to use that word anymore, but that's what it was called. So in order to address this error that was coming up about this different views of, is God taking different modes? Well, surely, well, well he's really three gods, not one. Tertullian came up with this word called triunity after a careful study and observation of the scriptures. He observed God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Tertullian said that all three are of the same substance. Um, and so it could be said, well, what's the Trinity? Uh, I don't know, but here it is. It's clearly described only right here in the scriptures. And so the idea of the Trinity has never not been a position of the church. Um, there have been many throughout church history that have tried to sort of re-explain God outside of the Trinity. Um, and that's when we would have all of these councils, church councils that would come and form thoughts and doctrines about the work of God, the person of God, the nature of God, the character of God. For, for example, one of them, the Council of Constantinople, the church stated this against this false teaching concerning God. Uh, it says this, he is fully God, fully man, united in one person, without confusion and without separation in one person forever. The church has always held to this doctrine. See, without the Trinity, our faith crumbles. Now, let's take a look at a few places uh, where we see and find the Trinity in the scriptures. And then when we conclude here in a few minutes, we're just gonna talk about, well, what does this mean for us today? Like, what, why, do we, why should we even care about this? So let's first look at and make sure, yes, this is in fact found all over the Bible. Uh, one in one place in particular where the Trinity is most clearly and vividly seen uh, is in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. 
Gospel of Mark says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so here we have this vividly clear picture of the Trinity. God the Son, right, walking on earth. We have um, God the Father speaking, and we have God the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. This beautiful picture of all three parts of the Trinity together working as one. Now, for you and me, when we, uh, when we read this verse and we kind of have this idea or we have this word picture of the Spirit of God descending like a dove, this seems kind of natural for us. Um, because if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you've read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you read and the Spirit of God is often characterized by this idea of a dove. It's a very common understanding that we have. But Mark, who wrote this, this would have been a very new idea. This would have been uh, very rare to compare the Spirit of God like a dove. In fact, there is only one other place in all of Judaism, that we have God as being likened to a dove. And this, most scholars believe, this is exactly where Mark was getting his language. He was hearkening back to this one example of God, the Spirit, being defined and described as a dove. And God is likened to a dove, uh, track with me here for a minute, as we just kind of get academic for a second, in the Targums. Now, what is a Targum? A Targum is, was one of the Aramaic, or, or was the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible that the Jews of the time almost exclusively read because most Jews spoke Aramaic in this time. And so the Targums was essentially the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, uh, translated in Aramaic, and this is what would have been read in the synagogues. This is what would have been read uh, traditionally to um, God's people. Um, and in the Targums, as it was um, translating the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, the very first chapter, in verses 1 and 2, if you remember, as God is creating, it says things, it says this, that the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep or over the face of the waters. And the Hebrew word here um, that's translated hovered, the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, the Hebrew word translated is the word flutter. And so when Jewish scholars 
were translating the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic to speak it in the synagogues. They translated it this way in the Targums, and they would have read it this way. The very first chapter, first and second verse of the written word of God, the Hebrew translation uh, into Aramaic, they would have read this. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God then spoke and said, let there be light. And so Genesis chapter one, the very beginning, here you have the creation account. And at the very beginning, as it would have been read um, by Jewish scholars and rabbis to this group that Mark was writing to would have been familiar with, they would have used this imagery that darkness was over the face of the deep and God fluttered above it like a dove. And then God spoke and said, let there be light. And so here in the creation narrative, at the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, we have three parties in the creation of the world. There is God present. There is God's spirit fluttering like a dove. And there is God's word because he creates with his word. He speaks and it exists. God, God's spirit fluttering like a dove, and God's word. Now, later, John would help us put the pieces of these three persons together. In John chapter one, he gives us an understanding of exactly what's happening in Genesis chapter one. And we see God, God's spirit, and God's word. And John tells us that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. John tells us that at the very beginning, God was Trinity. God is Trinity. He always was. There were three parties involved at the very beginning. God, God the Spirit, and God the Son, His Word. Isn't that amazing? And so here in Genesis chapter 1, we have the Trinity, the Father, the Word or the Son, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove. And what Mark was doing is he was drawing us back. He was pointing us to the original creation. You have the Father, the Word, the Son, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove. Mark is telling us that just like you had in the original creation of the world, a triune God, so also we have at the recreation of the world, at the renewal of the world, where salvation will come and a new beginning is happening, you have the work of the triune God, the same God that created is now recreating us in his very image. The Trinity, it is foundational. So we have creation and we have redemption. 
That is the work of the Trinity. And it has been from the very beginning. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so we could, we could spend hours just pointing out all these different places where we see the Trinity popping up. Uh, those are two that are powerful to me. So what does that mean and matter for me today? I mean, so what? Like that, hey, that's really cool. Uh, that's kind of a nice little nugget, but why is this important? Um, let's face it, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is a lot to take in. It's mentally a lot to process. The Christian teaching on the Trinity is overloads our mental circuits oftentimes. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity, this idea that God is one and God is eternally existing in three persons, it is not tritheism. It's not three gods who really like each other and they just kind of hang out with each other all the time. It is not unipersonalism, meaning that he takes different forms or modes that we talked about earlier. No, Trinitarianism is that there is one God and three persons who know and love one another. The doctrine of the Trinity is exploding with implications for our life today, right now. What do I mean? Uh, follow me here, we're almost done. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are glorifying one another, John 17 tells us. They're constantly glorifying one another. They're constantly edifying one another. They're constantly um, bringing union to one another. And C.S. Lewis describes this interplay, this tri-unity in this way that I think is uh, brilliant. He states it like this, C.S. Lewis. The most important difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing. Uh, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, and if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. I love this. C.S. Lewis says, this relationship of our triune God is like a dance. That means that the persons within God exalt, commune, and defer with one another. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. He says, the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is being played out in each one of us. Or to put it another way around, each one of us has got to enter into that pattern or take his place in this dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we are made. C.S. Lewis is saying, are you searching for joy? Are you searching for meaning and happiness in this life? He's saying, enter into the dance that God has shown to us in his tri-unity. Enter into this interplay. We see beauty, we see collaboration, we see words of affirmation. It's all happening in the Trinity, right? We saw earlier, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the spirit descending. It's this interplay of unity and 
affirmation and beauty. Now, the opposite of this idea, the opposite of the idea of trinity, triunity, is selfishness. Selfishness could be defined as static. It's not a dance. There's no interplay. Selfishness is only thinking of you. A self-centered life is a life that everything orbits around you. Um, you may give to the poor, but you only do it so long as it makes you feel good inside. Uh, you may help people. You might even fall in love. You might have friends. So long as there is no compromise of your needs, of your wants, or your desires, or your interests that make you happy, so you orbit all of these other things in your life around you. That is a self-centered life. Self-centeredness is non-negotiable. It's what I want, what I like, when I like it. Everything orbits around me in a self-centered life. The Trinity is entirely, uniquely different. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit characterized by mutual self-giving love. Mutual self-giving love. That's who God is. And he has been that way forever and ever and ever and ever. And that is what God invites you and I into, that dance. The Father and the Son and the Spirit do not insist that the other revolves around them, but rather they center on one another. They glorify one another. They adore one another. They serve one another, which means every one of them goes out of their own way to orbit around the other one. This is a beautiful dance. Now, when you dance, confession, I'm terrible at dancing. Ashley's great at it, uh, much to her chagrin. I cannot dance. But when we've tried to dance, or when she dances and I try to dance, um, you can't just stand there and expect someone else to dance for you. You're not dancing, the other person is. You can't just say, well, you dance around me and now we're dancing, right? I'll do what I want and you dance. So many of us live our lives in that way. I'll stand right here and everyone else dance around me uh, and I'll tell you where you're not doing it right. So many of us say to our spouse, orbit around me. So many of us say to our children, orbit around me. So many of us say, to our friends, you orbit around me. And I'll enter in and I'll leave when I see it fit for me and my happiness. That is the opposite of Christianity. In the Trinity, who God is, we learn where we find joy and happiness. And it's not doing as you please. It's entering into this dance 
that Lewis is describing so beautifully and that is being shown and modeled to us in creation and in redemption in the triune God. Dynamic joy, pouring love, joy, adoration, deferring to one another, serving one another, putting the interests of one another in front of your own. If we lived in that manner, church, if we loved our friends and our spouses and our children in that manner, uh, there would be no more need for counseling. We wouldn't know the word divorce. We wouldn't know the word fractured family. We wouldn't know the word um, fractured friendship, broken relationships, Brokenness comes when we step out of that dance. Brokenness comes when we make everyone else orbit around me. And when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, there are profound implications in our lives. Because when we see the Trinity and we know it, and we see God beckoning us into this dance, on a practical level, it shows us what love is. It shows us how to serve and grow and relate with everyone around us. That's the way of our Trinitarian God. Triunity. It is beautiful. It is biblical. And it's what he's calling us into. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you that as we look at your word, God, you show us what you're like. You show us who you are. And so God, as we begin this series looking at all these doctrines, God, I pray that they wouldn't just be um, things for us to know, points to know about you, but they would be the person and nature of our great glorious triune God and that you're beckoning us into this life that you are modeling and showing and desiring for us. So God, I pray that we would step into that dance and that we would love and serve and grow and defer and edify and glorify you and that we would love and serve and, and know how to relate to one another as we look at you. We need your help. God, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, church. Uh, let's worship with one more song.